Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, there is a debate over the national flood insurance program in the wake of the damage by uh, Hurricanes Harvey and, Her- and Irma. And here to explain uh, exactly what the program does and its future is David Sampson. He is the chief executive of the Property Casualty Insurers Association of America. And he's also the former deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Commerce under George W. Bush. David Sampson, thank you for being with us. Can you just describe for people what is the national flood insurance program? How does it work and what are some of the challenges it faces? Well, the National Flood Insurance Program is in existence because uh, your regular homeowners or business policy uh, doesn't cover uh, flood insurance. That dates it dates back to the 1960s, uh, where there uh, was uh, problems with flood maps and and uh, being able to underwrite flood risk. And so, the National Flood Insurance Program was created uh, in the 1960s as a supplement to your regular homeowners uh, policy. And uh, we emphasize all the time with homeowners and business owners that uh, uh, your regular policy doesn't cover flood. And uh, to be covered for flood, you need to buy that, uh, that separate policy. Um, the policy, uh, no pun intended, is underwater. It's $25 billion dollars. Uh, uh, in debt. It's uh, not run on an actuarially sound basis uh, uh, like your uh, private sector insurance insurance companies would be required to do. Uh, the premiums are heavily subsidized by the, the taxpayer. And as a result of that, uh, after Katrina and uh, Sandy, uh, the program is now about $25 billion in debt. So there's a lot of discussion in Congress about what reforms need to be made to the program. Uh, it was set to expire September 30th. Um, we supported a, um, an, an extension of that in the wake of uh, Harvey and Irma. It's now uh, extended through December the 8th. Uh, but long term, uh, there needs to be a discussion in Congress about how to put that program on a more sound financial uh, footing. David, uh, you represent about a thousand companies that write 35% of the U.S.'s home, auto, and business insurance. I'm wondering what role they could or would be willing to play in the flood insurance market. Do you expect that there will be some kind of convergence of public and private insurance plans to cover flooding, especially as uh, the expectation for these types of storms increases? Yeah. Well, there's always going to be a need for a federal backstop for the flood insurance. So I think there's going to need to be um, uh, a long-term reauthorization of the flood in national flood insurance program. But clearly, there is uh, increasing appetite in uh, the private sector among private insurers and reinsurers uh, to write uh, some flood coverage. Uh, the uh, flood mapping technology is much better uh, today than it was in 1968. You can just imagine uh, the advances uh, there. Uh, and uh, underwriting is uh, much more advanced. Uh, insurance underwriting is more advanced today than it was in the 1960s. And so we do think that there is financial capacity out there and appetite among uh, insurers, some insurers and reinsurers to 
uh, take on some of this uh, risk and uh, to be able to take uh, some of the risk away from uh, the federal government and the, and the federal taxpayer. David Sampson, what is being done or what can be done to avoid the scams and the frauds that are uh, perpetrated on people who are rebuilding their lives, their homes and their neighborhoods? Well, uh, first of all, the insurer's number one priority right now is getting checks into the hands of policyholders to get families back in their homes and cars back on the road and businesses opened again. Um, We're surging um, uh, uh, an army of claims adjusters into uh, Florida just as soon as the local officials um, uh, say it's safe to, uh, to get back in and allow us in. But uh, consumers need to be very, uh, you know, careful. The first thing uh, consumers need to do uh, is to call their insurance agent uh, or their uh, insurance company, report the damage, uh, photograph, uh, take video of all household items that are damaged or destroyed in the storm. Uh, unfortunately, we know that there are some bad actors who prey on storm victims. And so we encourage folks to be very, very careful of uh, roofing companies or contractors or uh, restoration companies that just come walking down the neighborhood and uh, uh, put pressure on people to sign uh, to sign a contract right now and tell them that if you don't sign up right now, you're going to be at the back of the line. Uh, consumers need to be very, very uh, suspicious of uh, that kind of activity. Uh, check professional refer- references. Be sure you, uh, w- before you sign a contract, be sure you know the scope of the work that they're uh, going to do, the time frame, the cost. Um, and uh, the good news is today that a lot of uh, insurers uh, uh, are deploying a lot of technology to make it easier uh, for uh, policyholders to file their claims. There's yeah. mobile apps, there's online applications. Insurers will be using uh, drones uh, in in Florida to try to assess uh, rooftop uh, damage. Uh, And you can always ask for uh, good references from the claims adjuster uh, as well. David Sampson, thank you so much for joining us. David Sampson is Chief Executive Officer of the Property Casualty Insurers Association of America, also the former Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Commerce under George W. Bush. He is based in Washington, D.C. Equifax has been in the news, shares dropping further today, bonds as well falling after they specified that they had a particular software vulnerability that they knew about or were warned about before uh, their whole system was breached and 143 million U.S. consumers' data were uh, were exposed and potentially put into the hands of uh, malintended people. Jordan Robertson joins us now. He's technology reporter for Bloomberg News, as well as Vinny Troya, chief executive officer of Night Lion Security in St. Louis. Jordan, can you just set this up for us? Uh, what is the latest development in this story? and how damaging is it for Equifax? Sure. As, as everyone knows by now, Equifax uh, was the victim of a breach that affected you know, more than 140 million people's social security numbers and other details of their consumer credit accounts. And what Equifax announced uh, last night was it confirmed uh, some earlier reporting that had gotten out that it was uh, the way the attackers got in was through a particular software vulnerability uh, in software used to build websites. Uh, many large companies use this. It's called Apache Strut. 
software. It's open source software. Uh, and the, the key thing about this software is that uh, there was a critical vulnerability in it, but that vulnerability was patched or it was fixed uh, was two months ago. Uh, but Equifax apparently didn't apply that fix by the time the hackers got in in mid-May. Uh, there is a caveat there, though, is that you know, many organizations take you know can take weeks or even months to apply patches. However, uh, you know, for critical vulnerabilities like this one, uh, you know, that's that's an awfully long time, and, and Equifax is going to take some heat, uh, you know, and have to answer some questions about, you know, what caused that delay. Well, the stock of Equifax is down another one percent after falling more than fourteen percent yesterday. Uh, Vinny Troya, maybe you could describe for us if you went to visit Equifax, what would you see? Would you see a, you know, the most modern, the most up to date and secure uh, cyber prevention facility? or would you see people that are racing around to try to put their fingers in the dike? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I can tell you kind of firsthand, I mean, Equifax had um, recently, uh, you know, a number of job postings um, regarding, you know, different security positions that they were looking for. And I mean, I know firsthand from employees over at Equifax that had a number of legacy systems, uh, all these kind of... um, Legacy means old in technology speak, right? Correct. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's all right. So they had all these old systems with, you know, basically there's all these different technology stacks running around there and they were trying very hard to consolidate them all. Um, but many of those systems, from what I understand, simply were going unchecked or unpatched. You know, they weren't updated for any of these critical vulnerabilities and they were just left to kind of, you know, fend for themselves. And I think that's the problem. You know, that's where we ended up today. Vinny, what was the motivation behind not patching up these problems? Was it motivated from saving money or was it just simply uh, that the problem didn't seem that urgent? I don't, to be honest, I, I don't, I, mean, I think it was just a lack of resources. I mean, when you have all these different systems with all these different technology stacks and not enough people to maintain them, I mean, I know they were in progress to um, try to consolidate all of them so that they could maintain them all. Um, but I just don't think they were caught up to that point yet. Vinny, I'd love to get a sense of how widespread this lack of taking care of business is among big corporate America. Are there other companies that have similar problems and vulnerabilities that aren't being patched simply because uh, they don't have the resources or they're trying to do too much with too little? I mean, I think this applies to everybody. I mean, I don't think there's a large company out there that I've seen that doesn't do this. Um you know, lack of um, good security resources is a, is a very widespread problem right now. And in organizations, I mean, even if sometimes, even if they are willing to spend the money, just can't find the people to, to do the work. I mean, there's a, definitely a shortage of good security people right now. Jordan, speak to the issue of the response on the part of Equifax, because there have been stories that the website tool that would let consumers see if their individual information had been breached uh, doesn't work. Also, I understand uh, there's been a directive that was sent out by the uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, earlier today saying that there are now scammers. There are people impersonating credit bureau staff. They are calling people, telling them that they are from Equifax, looking to verify their account information. And the FTC says, don't tell them anything. No one from Equifax is going to call you. What have you learned? Yeah, you know, my assessment is yeah, Equifax has really blown it when it comes to the response to this breach. Uh, you know, uh, people feel very vulnerable when this type of information leaks. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Equifax's website 
for trying to determine if you, uh, you know, were affected, uh, it really didn't seem to work. People punched in all kinds of random characters and codes and still got responses back that they were breached. It didn't seem to be like a, a very functional website. You know, in addition, Equifax uh, originally had language on that website saying, you know, if you sign up for these protections and if, if you're a victim, uh, you know, you uh, remove all rights to sue the company in any class action suit. And then on top of that, the thing that really kind of sticks in my craw is, you know, when companies get breached like this, there's a very standard response. There's a playbook now, which is, you know, you offer people a year or two of free credit monitoring protection. These are pay, these are pay services that normally cost, uh, you know, $15, $10, $15 a month, uh, you know, and that, that shields companies from liability. In other words, if you can't prove damages and you can't prove you were harmed uh, and the company says, hey, we offered these free protections, uh, then you can't sue. So it's a, legal, it's a legal shield. What Equifax did in this case is they didn't go with a third-party company to provide that service. All Clear ID is a big company that does this, LifeLock and others. They went with their own service. They're signing people up for, the, for credit fraud monitoring uh, you know, from one of their own services, which you know, in theory at the end of the year, which is their, their, uh, their monitoring period, uh, you know, they're going to try to sign you up for the service. You're already in the database. It's very cynical. Uh, I understand why the company would do it. Uh, you know, it's a service under their control, and they can uh, they can account for that. Uh, but from a, a public relations and a perspective, you know, a, a perception standpoint, uh, you know, it's really it's it's deeply cynical to be a victim of their breach and then have to go sign up for one of their services. Indeed. Well, I know you're going to be following this story because it is nowhere near over. Talking about Equifax and 143 million U.S. consumers whose uh, specific information information, whether that is social security numbers, addresses, passwords, uh, user ID numbers uh, have been breached. I want to thank you very much. Jordan Robertson is our our technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. And you can follow Jordan at JordanR1000 on Twitter. And our thanks also to Vinny Troya, the chief executive of Night Lion Security. They're based in St. Louis. Toshiba Corporation, the struggling Japanese conglomerate, has been trying to sell its immensely valuable microchip business to a group of American and Japanese buyers. Bain Capital has emerged as the leader, along with some other investors that are contributing money. And now we're getting news that Apple may be joining that particular team to bid on this business. To discuss more, I want to bring in Alex Sherman, technology, media and telecom M&A reporter for Bloomberg News, as well as Anand Srinivasan senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Alex, let's start with you. Uh, is this a surprise that Apple is joining this? And what would be the structure of this arrangement? I don't think uh, Apple joining it is necessarily the surprise since they've been sort of hovering around this process uh, the, the you know for months and months. What's a surprise might be the number that they're thinking about investing uh, in this Bain consortium, uh, which we uh, broke the story yesterday that they're in talks to invest about $3 billion, maybe even a little more, um, in Toshiba's memory chip business. The strategic logic here is simply that these chips are in iPhones. Uh, so, you know, they, they're flash memory chips that store photos and video clips and augmented reality. So Apple has a, uh, you know, has a big reason to, 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 to want to have control over the future of these chips and not to lose them, um, or at least lose pricing power over them. However, you know, $3 billion, that may not seem like a lot to Apple. You figure, what? Apple has $261 billion of cash on their balance sheet. What's $3 billion? 
But Apple does not have a big track record of doing investments in M&A like this. In fact, the largest deal they've ever done was the $3 billion deal for Beats a few years ago. Uh, and this may actually exceed that. So really, if you put it into those terms, it would be Apple's largest acquisition slash investment ever. I want to bring in Anand Srinivasan. Uh, Anand, speak to the, the actual hardware and, and semiconductor uh, aspect of this, the technical sort of situation and uh, the value that this company has uh, to, to Apple and to Bain Capital. Look, this is supply sourcing, right? So you want to lock up as many components of your supply in um, a clear way as possible for as long as you can. So to the extent that you can relieve uh, the financing situation of a of a, a key component of yours um, is is a win for Apple. Insofar, it's a commodity, right? So the fact that they're able to get a long term view on commodity, clear sourcing on a long term view, it's a win for it's a win for Apple. Yeah, one. Of, but if you step back and look at the longer term context of Apple, Apple is fast becoming one of the larger semiconductor companies. To the extent that it's logic chips, highly differentiated chips. Uh, with their substantial intellectual property, Apple is designing and making those chips. To the extent that it's a commodity, it is trying to shore up supply agreements. So depending on the value of that component in the Apple food chain, Apple's taking different steps. You know, given the importance to Apple of this business and that it's trying to lock up its supply chain, it is a commodity. Uh, I have to wonder, Alex, are there any other competing bids that could even be floated uh, that could rival this uh, composite bid that now includes Apple. Uh, sure. So there have been there are three bids around this, and there have been three bids around this for some time. Although the bit players have shifted, uh, the, the the biggest uh, hurdle for a deal to get done here still is the presence of Western Digital, which feels like it has some legal rights to the Toshiba memory chip business uh, through a deal uh, it did with SanDisk a couple of years ago. So Western Digital has paired with KKR uh, for a competing bid here and sort of continues to threaten uh, litigation if, in fact, Toshiba decides to go with any other consortium, uh, and the Bain consortium seems like the most likely one. I mentioned earlier Apple had been hovering around this for a while. Initially, Apple actually backed a bid uh, from a, a consortium led by Foxconn, which, of course, makes iPhones. Uh, but it became clear over the past few weeks that uh, there was very strong political opposition, Japanese opposition, toward Foxconn winning a bid, um, given uh, you know Foxconn's presence in China and Taiwan yeah. and the political implications of losing a, a, a gold star business like this uh, and, and, and sending it over from Japan to a sort of uh, you know Chinese uh, Taiwanese yeah. business uh, well, that didn't fly politically. Anand, you have. So, so a couple of things that interest me. One is the deal price is very high. If you wanted the maximum amount of money, you would have gone with Han Hai. Obviously, the China-Japan venture doesn't fly so easily. Western Digital's interest in this uh, in the Toshiba stake, where SanDisk, its uh, uh, acquired entity, is already a JV partner, is also about supply. Um, remember that the flash memory business is relatively consolidated with Samsung with 40% share. So uh, Toshiba SanDisk is the next um, in the in the 30s. So that wouldn't have uh, flown that easily. So this is all about um, shoring up supply. And the reason Apple is important is because they consume 37% of NAND memory. 
supply and demand. Thanks very much. Anand Srinivasan, our senior semiconductor hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Alex Sherman. M&A reporter for Bloomberg, speaking about Apple, Bain Capital, and a potential acquisition of Toshiba's chip business. And we call upon Laura Litvan, our congressional reporter for Bloomberg News, who can be followed on Twitter at Laura Litvan, L-I-T-V-A-N. And Laura, uh, maybe just begin with what was in the food last night uh, with the uh, uh, the president's dinner with Nancy Pelosi, uh, minority leader and uh, the minority leader in the Senate, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. Were they eating from the same menu? Because it seems as though they came away with two different versions of the meeting. Well, they apparently ate the same Chinese food at the meal, but they did certainly come away with very different representations of what happened, at least initially. Uh, they seem to pull closer together. The uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi said last night that they had a tentative deal with the president to marry uh, protections against deportation for 800,000 young immigrants brought here as kids with a border security package. And they said there was an understanding there would not be funding for a border wall as part of that. And then Trump this morning tweeted there was no deal, uh, and but also tweeted in uh, defending the young immigrants and the, the fairness of letting them stay here because their parents have brought them here. And uh, then he later did make some comments to reporters where he said, uh, seemed to confirm the deal, and he said he wants to pursue a wall, but it would be later. The White House is really wrestling with this, though. They, uh, a White House spokesman pointedly said there will not be amnesty in this bill. Wanted to make that case this morning to reporters. Well, Laura, I want to also touch on uh, President Trump's comments that he just made uh, when he was on the tarmac in Florida. He talked about the wall being crucial, important. If the wall doesn't get done, nothing gets done. Uh, you know, this is is clearly uh, talking to his base, which has been expressing some uh, dissatisfaction with his deals with the Democrats recently. How realistic is it that he would come through on something like that and, and really kind of put the wall into uh, some legislation? Well, I he's if you really look at it, he's not really saying necessarily it has to be done this year or at this time, when he says that we're going to do a wall. Um, and But the fact is, the fact that he keeps seeming to send different messages to people and the fact that he's under pressure and is even being attacked by Breitbart News headlines today that say he's amnesty Don and is being attacked by tweets by uh, conservative Republican Steve King in the House, these things are a lot of pressure and it, it makes people wonder where this is going and if things could fall apart. And um, there's some prospect for that, but I did notice today that Republican leaders in the Senate, two of them told us that they do see some potential in doing something that marries um, what's called DACA, the deportation order, the protections that Obama put in place with a strong border security bill. Um, they said there's negotiating to be done, but there's some possible uh, you know, some possible agreement here. Well, we know that the the president is also speaking uh, in Fort Myers, Florida, as you mentioned, uh, arriving to check on the uh, re- the uh, reconstruction and the rescue operations related to Hurricane uh, Irma. Uh, do many Republicans, uh, Republican senators who are uh, represent the border states, do they really want this wall? Uh, no, there's been opposition from uh, border state lawmakers about a wall. Um, there's been a real effort by members like John Cornyn from Texas, 
uh, Republican leader and the House Homeland Security Chairman uh, Mike McCall. Both are from both are from Texas. Both have really pushed the president very hard behind the scenes to treat levees that are down along the Rio Grande River as a wall and to put more money into those and then just move on to other things like fencing technologies, other things that are needed. Um, and you know, there there may be some potential with the storms for Trump to pivot and, and do and call that a wall. Uh, we'll have to see how that comes together. You know, it's interesting. I'm wondering what President Trump's relationship will be uh, with fellow congressmen. There was uh, quite an amazing Twitter post by Senator Chuck Grassley, which is, as uh, one news outlet put it, a postmodern work of art. Uh, all in sort of acronyms. Morning News says you made a deal with Schumer on DACA. Have you have your staff brief me? I know you undercut judicial commission <laughs> it's like all not English, uh, effort for bi-party agreement. Is there dissent in just 10 seconds? Do you think that Republican congressmen are getting sick of President Trump's working with Democrats? I think they're um, concerned about it. Uh, and Grassley is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee with, with jurisdiction over this and seem to be taken completely by surprise. And that particularly is undercutting Trump's relationship with many of them. Thank you so much for joining us. Laura Litvin, congressional reporter for Bloomberg. We will bring you more as we get it. Uh, President Trump today kind of giving uh, some mixed messages, trying to figure out how to move forward on the DACA issue. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.